0: To another episode of the Universe Within podcast. On this episode, I spoke with Thomas Freiman, and Thomas was introduced to me by a mutual friend of ours, uh, Michael Kokal, who has a really good podcast himself called End of the Road Podcast. And uh, Thomas is a really interesting guy, and um, he recently finished his PhD in clinical psychology at Columbia University, uh, and he's really interested in. Um, integrating the kind of the, the psychological approach with psychedelic medicines, with plant medicines, uh, which is a, a very emerging field and something that's, I think, really moving full force ahead. Um, but he's also really interesting because he's worked with a lot of indigenous systems. He's uh, worked with the Shpibo the people, with ayahuasca. He uh, worked for some time at uh, Rhythmia, which is a big ayahuasca center in Costa Rica um and he also did a, a buiti aboga initiation which is always uh, uh, quite a quite a badge of honor, quite an experience. It's a, it's a pretty intense process. Uh, so he's a really fascinating guy. And we got into some really interesting topics about uh, psychedelic assisted therapy, integration, uh, plant medicines, kind of the role of the, the more Western model versus the more traditional or indigenous model. Um, so it was, a, it was a really beautiful conversation. And um, I I hope you all enjoy it. As always, if you are able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me to continue to bring on these guests. Uh, Patreon is a really good option. It's a subscription service. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, uh, bonus material, Q&As, and I, I really like the idea behind it, which is really based on reciprocity. So if you feel like you're gaining something from these podcasts and learning, uh, being able to give back so that I can continue to make these uh, very much. Uh, if you can see in the background, I'm coming from the Andes, and it's also a, um, a very predominant Andean principle, this idea of uh, of Aini, of reciprocity. So To all the people who have done that, to all the patrons, as always, thank you very much for your support. Uh, There's also the ability to direct donate via PayPal. I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes if you're not able to do that um, some of the really small things also make a really big difference so if you're listening to this on youtube subscribing to the show turning on the notification bell liking the videos that really helps with the algorithms and getting the show out to a bigger audience Um, leaving any questions or comments in the comment section and then with the audio version uh, subscribing or following to the show and leaving a starred rating and a short review that's a really big help so i think that's it when this um When this episode is released, I'm shooting a few in advance because I'm uh, beginning to run another dieta here in the the Sacred Valley of Peru. Um, So I think we still may have one more dieta open. Uh, So if anyone is interested in coming to diet, especially working with tobacco and and tree barks, really experiencing the the, the benefit of, of doing a, a plant dieta which is really going into isolation um, fasting and, and working very deeply with one plant to really go into its its healing and, and learning benefits then that's a really good opportunity uh, I'm running it with myself and my colleague Morav artsy if you'd like more information about that you can check out my website at nicotiana rustica org and also Morav has a site tobacco uh, tobacco diets.com. And I'll put a link to those in the show notes. Um, so I think that's it. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed this conversation with Thomas. It was a pleasure for me to have him on. And, uh, without further ado, here's the conversation. Out from the mace. Out from the mace. out of the today. Out from the out from the mace. Running out from the maze today I'm running out from the maze Running out from the maze Run out of the maze today Well, cool. Thomas, it's, it's good to have you on. Uh, we were chatting a little bit before we started and uh, a mutual, I guess, friend of ours, um, Michael Kokol, um, who I was on his podcast. I also had him on mine and uh, and I think you were on his as well. And he uh, he spoke very highly of you. He actually reached out and said, I should interview you. Um <laughs> Sometimes when people say I should interview people, it's uh, once I look into them, I'm like, oh, they, they may not be a good fit, but uh, but him, I definitely trust his judgment. So um, yeah, so it, it's good to have you on. And maybe to start, uh, you can just tell the audience a little bit uh, about yourself, who you are, where you come from, the the work you do, and, and how you got involved in, in what you're doing. Yeah, definitely.
1: Um, so yeah, my name is Thomas Freiman, um, now Dr. Thomas Freiman, as of a couple of days ago, basically.
0: Yeah, hey, congratulations. Um,
1: yeah, thank you. And yeah, do uh, clinical psychology. Uh, my doctorate was in the um, study of spirituality and psychology within the clinical psychology department. Um, so that was a big old seven-year path that I just um, have come to the the finish line, kind of like running through the tape right now. Um, And yeah, my work is on psychedelic integration, as well as the measurement of oneness experiences and how those get encoded into personal identity, um, with kind of the like key theory there being that our connection to oneness and then how we implement that is actually at the heart of a lot of what psychedelic integration is and what the benefits, um, the benefits are all kind of like different branches or like downwind sort of, um, expressions of that central tree trunk of tapping into deeper awareness of who we really are and how we express that in our lives. Uh, so I've also worked with uh, Navy SEAL veterans for the past two years as integration coach. And a lot of my work is kind of informed by those experiences. And we work with five uh, MEO DMT and Iboga. Um, then I've also worked, uh, Rhythmia as an integration coach, um, with ayahuasca there. Uh, and then also work with psilocybin. Good. Bit. So, yeah. A little bit of my background and I love surfing. And I'm from San Diego.
0: <laughs> so you just finished your PhD at Columbia? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. <clears throat> so how would you describe a uh, clinical psychology to someone who has no idea what that is?
1: Oh, I would say, hmm where have you been? (laughs) Um, no, my world is so dominated by psychology and I kind of just feel like I surround myself with people who are doing therapy and in therapy and whatever. Um, but yeah, actually I didn't know what clinical psych was like before I entered my program and I was like, what's the difference between psychiatry and psychology? Um, basically clinical psychology is the study that is the track towards becoming a, a licensed therapist. Um, and the lens interestingly, I think in clinical psych is is a lot of it is about looking at our kind of shadows and our clinical conditions. So that's like pathology is quite largely pathology dominated as a field, a little more so than I wish. Like, I actually feel very passionate about at least having a balance of like, okay, what's our problems, but also like, where are we trying to go? Who are we trying to be? What is meaningful and what's awesome that was kind of the birth of positive psychology there's been some trends in that direction Uh, but yeah largely clinical psychology is the study of what is going wrong and like how do we help people with that
0: and then what was your interest in in psychedelics how did that begin
1: yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was a funny story there. So I was in New York. Um I had graduated a quarter early and I was visiting Columbia um because I had a friend there and I was sort of just like interested in checking it out. And um it was four twenty and he had smoked some weed and he was going off. He's like, I need to tell this girl that I love her. Like <laughs> so he was going off to profess his love to somebody and he left me with his two friends who were drug dealers. Um and they had some shrooms. And I had never done shrooms and one of the guys like, do you want to do some shrooms? Like, okay. (laughs) So basically he just gave me some shrooms and I took them and wandered around New York for like 14 hours, just like walking the entirety of New York in all various ways throughout until like 5.00 AM in the morning. Um, and in that time, I just had these like incredible epiphanies and I was just noticing things and noticing my mind and like just so much, kind of feeling of like self-awareness and, um, sort of like intuition. And it's like, Oh, this is really interesting. Um, so that was my first experience. And then I'd say that prompted me into being curious about exploring more. And I had then a really significant experience, which was more in the mystical kind of type of experience of myself really dissolving and just this total flip flop of identity from feeling like I am a person in the universe kind of like I've dropped into the universe and now I'm walking around in it, um, to feeling like, no, actually the universe has just sort of expressed itself as me. Um, and there's no separation between what I am and what the universe is. And I had this epiphany while, um, contemplating life and death next to a dead seal and looking out at the ocean and being like, whoa, life is really just like waves in the ocean, the universe of the ocean. And what I am is like this fluctuation of that field of universe just a particular unique wave travelling through it and then i give myself this little label i'm like oh that's thomas but that that label doesn't actually make the wave something separate from the ocean and um, that that really informed my idea of oh if that's true then kind of i as that ocean am every single wave equivalently as i'm thomas so i should really try to act in a way that respects that truth um, which is really the golden rule of religion, like treat all other conscious forms as we would treat ourselves. Like if we were occupying that form. Um, so that sounded really beneficial to me and it, and it has been, um, And yeah, that's kind of, I think like the, the heart of my passion in regards to psychedelics is helping access that identity transformation and then also, um, sort of embody it in life.
0: And when, when you entered clinical psychology was, was working with psychedelics, uh, like an option at that point, was that, because it seems like a field that it's very much taking off, but when you started, was that, yeah. was that a potentiality or was there still a kind of weirdness around that or.
1: There's definitely a weirdness when I entered, um, and I've had a lot of logistic hurdles going through my program, um yeah, just kind of an uphill battle in a lot of ways. Um, and I kind of feel like I'm, it, it was harder getting in at the time that I was, the whole process was a lot harder to like, just even on the clinical end, like to try to do things that are related to psychedelics. There's no legal validation of that being a, a an option that is sort of like credentialed or certifiable. So any work I did with psychedelics had to be completely above and beyond what I was doing already. So I kind of feel like I ended up doing two PhDs at once. Um, One was the one I was really passionate about. And then one was like kind of the one within the confines of the system. Um, and even just trying to do it on my own time was a, a struggle often. Like, like I'm just trying to do this because I'm passionate about it, but still there's like restrictions and red tape and it was for sure an uphill uphill battle, but really cool to see it being kind of like legitimized and, uh, validated
0: that and do you have a sense of of where that's going now that direction because it, it seems like with like for example maps I mean they're they're beginning to do some legal research with with psilocybin and MDM well I guess first it was MDma and and now psilocybin <clears throat> do you foresee that? Uh, I mean, I guess it 's already on its way to becoming a thing, but do you do you have a sense of of how that 's going to become manifest, or are there going to be certain avenues, whether through universities yeah. or through other organizations where that 's actually going to be a possibility yeah,
1: yeah that 's actually something i 'm super passionate about um, so I think for sure it will manifest in some way, and like what way will it manifest is up to us as people who are in the field and shaping the the ways it's manifesting so One of the projects I'm looking at doing um, as a postdoc potentially is looking at like, for example, facilitator um, trainings. And like, what what are the criteria through which facilitators should be selected, trained, kind of filtered? Um, Because the answer to that through our current system, is very different than the answer that indigenous tribes would provide who have been training facilitators for thousands of years. Um, and I think there's some concerns in the discrepancy between those answers. Um, so I can't say how, you know, what the, the intermingling will be, but I hope that we sort of like mix those ingredients well and bake up something that is at least, uh, edible, if not delicious.
0: <laughs> Can you speak a little bit more about that? I mean, um, Probably a lot of people listening will have some idea about what you're talking about, but uh, I mean, from what I what I take from it, going through certain means of you know certification or clinical psycho- psychological approaches, there's a real beauty to that because there is a training, there's a standardization, there's a, an accrediting system, so much like when you go to a doctor, you, you have a pretty good sense of like an allopathic doctor that he's, he or she has done the proper training and and there's a real benefit to that. Um, but then potentially there's a limitation because you're, you're taking something and you're looking at it through a particular cosmovision or worldview, which may be very different from how these things have actually traditionally been worked with. And so that training, much like, as you said, there, there's a, I don't know if this is the word, but a a psychologizing of, of a way of looking at this work, whereas maybe in a more indigenous context, that certainly would have been part of it, but there was something maybe more or, or deeper that they were also looking towards as well.
1: Yeah. I think it's, you know, I like the point that you brought up that there's something really beautiful and, and amazing and good about the systems that we have. And we can't, just do away with systems for sure. You know, it's like capitalism or something. It's like, yeah, a lot of, a lot of downsides, but at the basic, I don't know, I'm, I'm really getting out of my like, domain here. I don't know much about economics, but as I think about it, like capitalism is like, okay, we value certain things. And then we, it's like, what do people like to give a system of value is a really important facet of making society work. Um, so we can't just like do away with how people value things wholesale. Um, and similarly, I think we can't do away with uh, standardization, science, measurement, rules and restrictions, etc. Um, and you can actually see in in some indigenous contexts that the lack of those can be concerning. Um, there, you know, there's it's not like the Western world is just like this bad place, and the indigenous world is this good place. Like it's definitely pros and cons of both. Um, so how we mix those is going to be interesting. But I think particularly in regards to psychedelic facilitation and context and integration, some of the things that we lack in Western society are are reflected. So um, just a lack of connection to nature. Like already, I think we're seeing in ketamine clinics and how we're facilitating some of the things that are legalized. Nature is not like a big part of the encouragement or values and can't say like wholesale, but like largely like there's not like, okay, if you're doing ketamine, you're going to do it in nature. Like it's definitely not like that. Right. Um, but if you're in a lot of places in indigenous context, you're going to be in nature for sure. If you're doing these experiences and you're going to be within a system of like tribal kind of identity or just community, you know, like some form of community is going to be around you. Um, and there's, Probably going to be somebody who's worked with the plant a lot of times. Um, and none of those things are present in the way that we approach the medical industry. Like, our psychiatrists don't have to do SSRIs hundreds of times, <laughs> for example. But if there's a facilitator, they should have experience with that particular substance, like, and a lot of experience with that to really know the ins and outs of how that plant works. And what people are going through when they're navigating it and how to help shape and direct the energy as the person is in that experience, um, and, and holding that within the context of a community and connecting that to nature, which is really like, we feel so disconnected in a lot of ways. Like these elements are super important and they're not really a part of our medical model. So that's where I guess I'm speaking to. Um, I hope that as we combine these two things, there's probably more emphasis than I anticipate will be given to some of the things that we're not familiar with as a, or as familiar with as a culture.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a super important point. Um, I mean, for example, I I actually studied economics. Uh, Interestingly, I, I don't know why, but (laughs) <laughs> but I think it's very true what you said. I, I mean a lot of these things get a get a bad rap. And there there's this thing that we like to do, which is in English we say like throw the, the baby out with the bathwater. And right. uh, I mean capitalism on its most fundamental level is is a, a voluntary exchange, which I think everyone would actually support if they realize that. Uh and and a decentralization, which is the beautiful thing. And of course, like anything, when there's checks and balances and things can be taken to extremes and and then you get uh, corruption. But but I think that's really important, that that idea of balance, uh, of also recognizing the the good and the bad in in all of these systems. with with that clinical psychological approach, you mentioned like this idea that there's a accrediting mechanism. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned this idea that maybe you weren't super happy with kind of the the more shadow aspect, the maybe the the like Jungian approach of of, of analyzing these things. What would you say are, are the benefits of that clinical psychological approach in in regards to, to psychedelics and and how that can be really useful?
1: Yeah. So I think, I guess if I think about the clinical approach as it is held in Western society, um, some of it just being clinical, it has a focus on clinical issues. So as I mentioned earlier, what is going wrong? What is bad? And it's really important to be familiar with that side of things because a lot of people are coming to these experiences out of a desire for healing. So obviously being familiar with the world of healing is very beneficial for sure. Um, and then if I think also about clinical side and like how it's held in Western society with the rules and regulations and accreditations, I think it's a form, there's some form of, uh, commitment, responsibility, and professionalism that is required to jump through those hoops. Um, and if people can't demonstrate that, then there may be concerns, not necessarily, but, um, you know, there, there could be concerns about how rigid they will be in their ethics or um, their attention to detail or things that are important for the psychedelic experiences and being um, kind of like a, a legitimate uh, provider. And I think we see a little bit of that, uh, you know, a little bit or more, I don't know, you know, currently with sort of a wild, wild west of facilitation um, and partly out of the legal status, right? There's not because it's not legal, we're going to just whoever I heard is serving ayahuasca or, you know, like kind of that's the approach um, now. And there's a lot of people probably who aren't, they might not make it through those hoops. And maybe that is also reflected in some problems that are coming up in those ceremonies. Um, And in indigenous context, I think like there's a different sort of filter, um, which is the filter of being able to get through the initiation dietas and rituals. Um, so for example, the Yawanawa tribe has a dieta called the Mukha dieta. Um, and that's a year of, I don't know the exact details of this, but it's something along the lines of like a year of a really strict diet, really strict abstinence, um, being in the jungle for by yourself for a long period of that time. Um, taking ayahuasca every couple of days. So, like, deeply, deeply immersing yourself, surrendering your body um, to the experience. And you have to have a lot of commitment to learning to be able to jump that hoop. It's not just like anyone's, like, oh, you know, I had a good ayahuasca experience. So now I'm now going to uh, do this. You know, like, that's got to be your life path. And you have to have, it's got to be in some way selfless because you're sacrificing so much. So, that's the means through which they create a filter. And I think that filter maybe speaks more to the heart and the quality of person and their like real dedication and the filter that I think Western society applies often may speak a little bit more to financial means, um, a little bit more to ability to like sacrifice and compromise to be able to get through kind of like rigid, um, regulations and restrictions. And it leaves us with a little, maybe less, validation of like heart, character, soul, Um, but it does address some other important elements. So I think how those are woven together will be a very interesting question.
0: You were speaking about something that's really interesting and and it seems like, especially with psychedelics, there, there seems to be this real emphasis on trauma. It's like a, a huge catchword right now. Mm-hmm. And very much, as you said, it, it, there's an emphasis on healing and, and there's something very fundamental about healing because healing at its root, it is etymological root means wholeness. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also seen, and maybe something you were alluding to is this idea of if, if someone continuously focuses on trauma, um, they're not necessarily looking at the the wider picture too. That that trauma is a part of it, much like maybe that that shadow work in the, the psychological point of view. But most of these psychedelics, uh, in a more indigenous perspective, even you mentioned ayahuasca. I mean, that's a Quechua word meaning "vine of the soul" or of the dead. So it's alluding to something much more than healing trauma. <laughs> there's something about going into death about going into the nature <laughs> of the soul. Um, um, in Shipibo, for example, the, the word ayahuasca, it's uni and it has this idea yes. of like knowledge or wisdom, much yeah. like gnosis and in, in more Western cultures, or, uh, the, the last interview I did was with a woman speaking about Ayurveda and you know, even Ayurveda, ah. it's the, the science or the knowledge of life. And so, ah. you know, in a way like, there's a much broader picture. And, and I think something you were mentioning when you were saying this idea of oneness, that, that actually the, the psychedelic experience is about something much deeper than, than necessarily just a reduction of certain parts, maybe trauma or, or healing being part of that. Um, can you maybe speak a bit about that? Because it seems like that's something that's really good that you're focusing on that's often very overlooked somehow.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a product of how our systems are legitimizing psychedelics right now, which is largely through research, which is largely based on clinical cases. Um, So I think if you zoom out and look at how people are benefiting from psychedelics, I think for sure there's huge part that are people who don't have clinical conditions and they're taking these and it's improving their life, which I think if you were to make a health analogy, that might be more similar to like, um, taking sort of like eating healthy food or taking vitamins or supplements, you know, might be more like a supplement than a medicine. Right. Um, I thought about this a lot because I, I guess coming into the clinical world i felt like oh man everything is pathologized like can't we can't we like create some words that validate our health and wholeness and wellness you know so along that vein i struggle a little bit when psychedelics are like sort of very purely referred to as medicines globally Um, and i kind of came to term with this in some sense by thinking okay like maybe if we visualize our whole humanity as like the state that we should be at is like a very loving and connected state. Um, and so relative to our theoretical potential, where we're all sick and in need of medicine, that's a little bit, I don't know, there's some unfortunate quality of looking at things like that. I feel like I also like to validate and, and applaud the many good things that do exist as well. Um, and, and recognize for sure there's a lot of area for improvement, but yeah, I think like basically science has done an amazing job in opening up people We're we're coming off the, the tail end of this seventies time where stigmatization happened and everything was shut down. Right. And to try to combat that, we had to say like, okay. Maybe let's take the most obvious cases, like the most obvious cases where psychedelics are beneficial is where somebody's like about to commit suicide or they've been like intensely self-harming or super addicted to something that's ruining themselves and their family's lives. And you take this psychedelic and it like completely transforms that or at least opens the door towards transformation. Well, that's a good thing. And it's hard to deny that that's a good thing. So I think that's where we're starting. Um, And that's why a lot of, I think the language and validation and kind of social attention is on that scope of things. But I think it's really, yeah, it's really nice and important to remember too, like everyone benefits from tapping into their oneness and transforming their notion of self-relationship such that it's more connected to other people, more connected to the fundamental universe or God or structure of, you know, whatever is bigger and beyond ourselves. Um, And so in that way, like it's it's inspiring to business people, it's inspiring to innovators and creators and helpful. Um, It's helpful for how we all relate to our own mortality and the inevitable mortality of our loved ones around us. Um, so I think it's, and it, and it can be a celebration, you know, like I, I, in the, I was actually just at the temple of the way of light with the shipibo and there's so much levity and laughter and they, they take that as part of the kind of important work they're doing. Um, and it makes me think of this Dalai Lama's quote, like cheerfulness is the one best kind of hallmark of a true spiritual, um, teacher that to access that place in which we're actually not contributing to the, the global suffering heap, <laughs> the expression of that is perhaps holding ourselves lightly while also addressing, you know, the suffering of others. Um, and so I think this like element of levity, humor, celebration, which is expressed at festivals and in even recreational trips in nature, like those are beautiful things as well. Uh, yeah, I think it's, good to validate the different expressions and and hold that there's pros and cons and balance to
0: to a lot of it if if people aren't familiar could could you speak a little bit more i think some people probably are aware but probably a lot of people aren't That in that psychological world as you mentioned during the the 60s and 70s there there was a lot of uh, working with psychedelics, things like LSD or mescaline, and there, there was a tremendous uh, potential and, and uh, a, a lot of healing happening, a, a lot of advancement of, of that field. And, and then, as you said, it, it at some point it became very stigmatized and, and criminalized. Um, yeah, maybe is, is that, are you familiar with, with kind of the, the, the history, the trajectory of that and can speak a bit about it? Yeah, yeah.
1: I can speak to it from the humble uh, stance of being a 32-year-old, uh, knowing that there are people out there who are literally lived in that time period. Um, so I know a little bit, and like part of the psychedelic integration scale research that we just wrote, we addressed um, that historical context. And one of the main things that stood out was a slogan of that time um, from Timothy Leary: "Like tune in, turn on, drop out," right? Um, and the dropout component being like sort of divorce yourself from social structures, and I see that as a function of them just being too different, like the social structures which were promoting a pretty largely unjustified war at that time in a pretty radical manner and criminalizing people who were protesting and that was just like kind of too much for for both sides to come together and so you, it led to this kind of rift between society and the hippies and psychedelic movement. And it's kind of unfortunate because there's always, there's always good sides to both. You know, both roles have a reason that they're there. Um, and for both sides to validate that is really important. But in this case, we had this kind of mass movement where it's sort of just like, okay, Forget responsibility. <laughs> like that baby is going out with the bathwater, and let's just take a lot of psychedelics in really high doses and really uncontrolled settings. And there's a beauty to recreational use, and there's uh, importance of set and setting and consideration of risks, risk profiles, and and locations and possible things that can happen when you're under the under the influence of psychedelics. So, um that led to this kind of wide stigmatization of psychedelics and the association with irresponsibility, lack of social concern. So what we kind of suggest was that that slogan, uh, be changed, tune in, turn on, drop in like what you're actually taking from that psychedelic experience, drop it into the system, like work with the system, appreciate the system for all of its roles and what it provides us it's very necessary to have systems we wouldn't have social order and paved roads and medical services and all these things without some system that looks like something um yeah let's reshape that system in ways that are beneficial um so that's that's kind of the shift i see uh kind of went from this radical teenagehood use of psychedelics of like well fuck it, let's do it all <laughs> you know everyone take as many psychedelics as you can in a really broad manner you know um kind of saying that but and, and now that's that's we're we're growing up a little bit into our adult stage of like okay wait <laughs> maybe we need to think about a few things that could go wrong and how are we going to work this into our responsibilities as a human species
0: you just said you were at the the temple, of the Way of Light. I—that's a place I, I worked at for about ten years. Um, oh, no what was way. that experience like yeah. for you? I didn't realize you were—you were just there.
1: Yeah, it was incredible. So uh, Matthew is actually helping us with our integration scale work. Um, so I came over there um, and and had a two-week experience. It was incredible. It was so amazing. It gave me such an appreciation for kind of a, a system of. The dieta and the and the or the diet components of um just like wiping out all of these influences and pulls that are always on our brain, like from technology use to salty food and ice cream and sugary food and sex and like all these things that are pulling on our dopamine system and our attention, just sort of like wipe those out, come into the jungle with a really fresh slate. Open up to ayahuasca to kind of like say, okay, here with your fresh blank canvas, here's what I'm going to show you about yourself. Um, and for me, that was, there's a couple of things that came up that were super impactful. One of them was like micro, making micro judgments and noticing how um, I would see somebody else's suffering and often in some small, maybe unconscious, maybe conscious way, distance myself from that. So And be like, oh, that person seems difficult. Okay, I'm going to like micro judge them and kind of be like, "Ah, I'm going to like stay away from them or somehow create a little rift in my mind about how I'm perceiving that person. And then I saw how like unjustified that is because in the experiences, I was just like, oh my God. I am feeling your suffering. And so I cannot judge it. It's like, I feel it so much and I can't judge. Nobody deserves judgment. Yeah. Discernment or, or an opportunity for improvement, but not judgment because that's all coming from places of our own hurt. Um, and I was just feeling that hurt as, uh, in such an intensely empathetic way. Um, So that actually, over the ceremonies, transformed into this new mental pattern of, like, when I would notice myself starting to do that, just, like, first empathy, connecting to, like, what is it, where is that coming from for that person, and what's it like to be them? Um, So, like, in part of my integration, jumping forward, I was in the surf, and this guy cut me off and then yelled at me. Um, And I was like, damn, like, I started to distance myself from him jerk. (laughs) Um, And then I noticed that distancing right away. And it's like, oh, you know what? He kind of looks like a military guy or maybe had a military father just like has that vibe. And it's like, what anger was transferred to him through intensely traumatic experiences? You know, and what, how is he perceiving me? And how's that coming up? Like, oh, those experiences probably were really, really way gnarlier and more to hold than I can possibly fathom. And so I don't want this guy to be angry. And so I replaced that then with like a well, wish, like, I hope, I I hope this guy can feel peace and calm inside and that I can be a part of what contributes to him feeling that. Um, so that came through in my follow-up ceremony to that. So that was like one big thing. And then, um, the drive for accomplishment. I had this really challenging experience in which I felt that all of humanity was like this, like, I saw this, like, hand kind of reaching out for something that it would kind of never grasp. It's like, oh, no, this is so painful. This is the nature of life, like, grasping after something we will never, never touch. How horrible, how sad, how awful, how painful that this is an eternal dissatisfaction that it stretches through eons in a mystical, awful way. Um, and just, I, I felt that later upon reflecting on that, it was really showing me something about the nature of striving for achievement, um, out of some sort of illusory hope for gratification. Um, whereas really what I'm looking for is love and belongingness and to drop into just being present and with people and good hearted is such a more satisfying means of, of having that. So the intensity of the, the pain I felt I felt was like a reflection of the disproportion inside of me of how I was approaching life and trying to find validation and connection, belongingness through accomplishing things. Um, and I saw how that reflected in my relationship with my friends and my partner that I would then, because I wanted to be validated, because I wanted to belong, I would hold the standard of them to be people who also would be helping me or people who were validated, um, through their achievements. And so holding a standard of them to be active or engaged, you know, um, and then that leading to projecting this form of sort of, um, not enough or dissatisfaction, slight dissatisfaction or reaching kind of clingingness and, uh, yeah, super transformative and positive for me to witness that and then actually feel like a lot of shift in like, oh, you know what? I'm going to drop that. I'm just going to be happy in the moment with who I am and where I am and like just recognize that that's not a very rewarding path. Um, and now I'm in the integration period of, of like kind of noticing little patterns where that comes up and trying my best to identify new ways of being and like incorporating that in my life. So that overall incredible experience.
0: Great. <clears throat> you you spoke about this uh, a few times. This idea of integration. <clears throat> now you're actually integrating yourself from from your own work, um, but that's a part of your work is is helping people with integration. I think integration also within this world, it's one of these words that's that's thrown out there a lot without necessarily being defined very well. So for you, how do you define integration and and what is that role of of, of helping someone else with with their own integrated process?
1: Totally, yeah. So I think it helps to think about what is integration at large first. That's just the word outside of psychedelics. And the way I understand that word is basically making connections. Like integration is connecting things and particularly things that are different or disconnected. Those are the things that tend to be unintegrated. Um, so in the psychedelic world, you're basically connecting the very different uh, conscious experience of the psychedelic uh, state with the conscious experience of your daily life state. So you're taking the mystical and connecting it to the mundane. Um, and the you're taking the lessons and epiphanies and intuitions and emotions that you tap into and connecting those into, oh how do I now live my life? How do I now make choices? Um, how, what's, what are my thoughts, etc. Um so weaving those two states together so that you can sustain, um, those kind of beneficial, positive aspects of what was shown to you in the experience. I think of this a lot as like, basically kind of like planting a seed, um, like the nature of the experience is a seed and you're like, okay, I want to, I want to tap into forgiveness. I'm going to plant that intention as a seed of my experience into my soul. And then in the aftermath, it's the integration is like everything that that seed weaves into or integrates into it becomes the tree. Um, so in, in terms of psychedelic integration, um, the sort of proposed definition we came up with in the article is the process by which a psychedelic experience translates into positive changes in daily life. There's a couple parts of that definition there. Um, so one is it's a process takes time, just like a seed doesn't pop into a tree unless you're, Uh, you know, doing like a fast mo something (laughs) or casting some magic on that seed, but usually like a seed is going to take a little while to grow into a tree. So it's a process just like psychedelic integration. Um, and then it's a, it's a process of translation, just like a seed is going to break down the nutrients, you know, or a tree as it's growing, is going to break down nutrients and distribute those. Um, you have this experience, let's say, okay, I tap into forgiveness. How do I translate? God's universal love into how I write a a birthday card to my dad, who I just had a conflict with or something, you know, how do I weave forgiveness into that birthday card? Um, and that's whatever it is. How do you translate these diffuse and deeply felt, um, spiritual experiences into practical actions, um, and how do you approach life? And then the last element being that that's in daily life and it's positive changes. So it's it's really in an ongoing sense that you're weaving these things, um, into how you're doing things moment to moment, like word to word, what word do I choose in the next sentence? And that's actually something I focus on with the clients I work with is looking at the power of language as a reflection of attention. Um, and even if, you know, like I choose the word I want to, bring levity and light into other people's lives versus I don't want to bring hatred and judgment like oh like what's my mind geared towards if I'm thinking about hatred maybe not identifying an alternative so I actually don't know what I'm trying to do Um, but yeah so identifying what we're trying to accomplish where we're trying to go like what our heart is saying to us like Yes, this is what's right for my life. Now, how do I, how do I translate these things into the way I'm being? It's kind of how we uh, think about integration. Yeah.
0: And and how important do you think that integration process is? Because there's also different thoughts about that. Some people would say, mm. well you're just going to integrate anyway you you, you had an experience yeah, and yeah. now it, it has yeah. to be integrated well what else can it do <laughs> there's other people that that really emphasize that like you need to do this and this and change these things and apply these things or, or work with someone um, from your perspective what is what is like a best practice of of, of doing that integration work mm-hmm.
1: yeah so I guess there's two questions that are like how important is it and what's the best practice? How important, um, I I like to think of it as like a map, uh, if you're fine with where you're at, you don't need, you can have that map and just chill with it. You're on the beach and you're like, I'm cool being at the beach. I've got a map. I don't need to go anywhere. (laughs) Integration doesn't matter, you know? Um, but you're given a map of sorts and and that's, uh, if you do want to go somewhere, if you're in uh, a sinking ship and you're (laughs) given a map to land. Um how you use that map is really important, and you're not going to want to stay on that ship just looking at that map. Um, you're gonna want to do something with it. Um so I think integ- how important integration is depends on where somebody's at and what they're looking for. If they're looking to make changes and translate things, it's extremely vital. Um and then how to best do that. Uh, some of the big, I would start with some of the big ways that I, I see it not happening, um, which is, uh, well, I'll, I guess first I'll identify like some of the core components. So I think, um, in the, the metaphor of the seed, I think of light is something a seed really needs and I compare light to attention. So without attention, your, your experience just exists in the shadows. And, uh, so the veterans I work with are a super motivated group of guys, um, often that motivation has translated into their work life and they're sort of looking to achieve like in really big ways and work might take on 14-hour jobs if they go in, have an experience go back to their 14-hour job all of the mental awareness is now redirected back towards that job and how to execute the things they did some of the experience will sink in um, to some extent but you know, if you kind of just relate to it as I had a one-off experience, I don't need to do anything with that. I don't need to pay attention to what those lessons were or how I'm approaching, how I'm doing, what I'm doing. It's going to it's gonna fade away, just like a little seed will not grow into a plant. Um, so I think light being the analogy of attention is a very, very important factor. Um, so on the positive end, what I do recommend for people is taking at minimum a week, if you have a really deep experience, um, you're signing up for an intense treatment uh, with a high dose, like take a week after to not do any work, to wipe everything off your schedule. The way I, I, for myself, integrated um, this uh, two week ayahuasca experience was to take a week in silence. um, And that abolished so many things. Actually, I, I was impressed. I was like, whoa, I didn't actually realize how many ways my speech is facilitating all these different things. Like I couldn't make commitments with my friends. Uh, I couldn't get distracted inside conversations at the store. It's like, I ended up just spending a lot of time in nature by myself. And that gave so much light that gave so much space for awareness to come in and give me space to contemplate and digest the experiences. What do they mean? Like how will they show up in my life? What is happening as people approach me and kind of pull on my attention? Um, uh, so my girlfriend and I, for example, were like in this period of like, how are we going to stay together or separate? And normally like I would be very involved in that conversation. I came back and I just listened to her and I realized like, whoa, just listening I have a lot more clarity now. Cause I'm not speaking on just like, what is her experience? What's she bringing? Um, so is eliminating a lot of these variables where I would start to get entangled with my environment and there'd be like polls on on, on my awareness and attention and time, um, so to meet that variable of awareness and light, I gave myself a week of no commitments and no speech. Um, and then another thing, uh, I think you could think of like the soil as like the physical and social environment as we're in. So if you plant um, if you plant a seed in some crappy, nutrientless soil, it's going to have a hard time growing, even if it has light. If you know, for example, you're a drug addict and you go back right to the soil of your friends who are using or, you know, cues to that environment. It's going to be pretty hard. Um, whatever that those miniature addictions could be, it could be an addiction to work. You go right back to your, uh, you know, work context where everyone has those set of values and they're pulling you in that direction. It's going to be hard to realign towards where you are trying to go again. If you're happy with where you're at, no worries. Like you don't need to realign, but that that means that you're already in a good soil, perhaps. So making sure that the soil is good and nutrient rich. Um, And then I think of the uh, sort of behavioral implementation as the water that is poured in there. So uh, we actually have to do something with these awarenesses. We have to speak our words um, through those awarenesses. We have to choose uh, our activities throughout our day and how we respond to things. Um, sort of like implementing those and, and maybe practices, um, so meditation or qigong yoga or dance or breath work. Um, these are ways of like kind of watering the plant. Um, so and in terms of positive implementation of soil and water, I would say like thinking about, um, what really feels like it's nourishing to the core values that speak to my heart. Is this person like really nourishing to my core values that speak to my heart? Is this practice? Because you don't want to just do meditation. Because let's say it's like everyone's like do meditation, but and you sit there and like okay I'm doing meditation. <laughs> no, you have to like is meditation nourishing your heart? Are you connecting in a heartfelt way to the value of that? Then you're going to engage with it in a way that is actually beneficial, and that's where science can actually be a little bit. Uh, limiting because you promote these benefits in a statistical way it's like oh then i should do that and then you might not actually engage with it from a heartfelt way Um, so i would say the positive implementation of actually doing behaviors or or practices is is from a a heartfelt place where you look at the all the options you're like ooh, this really speaks to me this really speaks to my values and where i'm going
0: you said something I think really important um, when we were talking about working with these various psychedelics that that one of the things that's that's essential in, in a more indigenous or traditional approach is is actually working with the the plant or the substance itself and and often for prolonged periods of times, uh, high doses, as you said, going into isolation, perhaps really restricting one's lifestyle for for often years. Um, and there's a tremendous benefit to that because through learning from oneself, one begins to to, to learn the, the inner workings of of our mind, of, of of nature, of of as you said, certain systems systems of nature, systems of the human mind, systems of society. What do you think is that balance of of doing that versus also? because we're also limited as to what our experiences are so for example if you're working with someone who's been in a an abusive relationship let's say for example you probably don't necessarily want to be want to go and experience 5 years of, yeah. a, of an abusive relationship <laughs> to be able to speak to right, how to right. heal that so yeah. do you, do you think these these medicines are teaching a certain like universal principles that allow us to then understand that the fundamental root causes of the infinite manifestations of, of, of how these, uh, these things could, could come to play.
1: Yeah. So I'm hearing a like kind of an exploration of the benefit and limitations of hands-on experience, um, and direct empathy. Um, like the first thing that comes to mind is uh, I think, yeah, for sure. Like direct empathy is so important. Like I've, I've, kind of just out of curiosity done that for a lot of my life. Like when I was in college, I decided to do a dollar trip where I scootered to Las Vegas from UCLA and back, um, with just a dollar to like experience homelessness sort of. And I like begged with a homeless guy on the side of the street and like slept on the floor. And, um, I learned an incredible amount about what it would feel like to be homeless, um, really quickly. Uh, And I think this, like, I blindfolded myself at one time when I was traveling in Chile to just experience what would it be like to be blind for a weekend. Um, I was like, oh, my gosh, like, I can't understand how people are reacting to me. I don't even know if they're listening. Like, all these, like, unexpected little things. So, And then the plants kind of tap us into that by, like, super amplifying our empathy system. So maybe we're sitting with somebody who has had abuse and suddenly we can tap into that field. of like, oh, my, that's what that would mean. So without literally going through five years of abuse, which would be an intense commitment to empathy. Um, yeah, we can kind of simulate those experiences through through plant experiences. I think it's super valuable. Um, and I think if I were to err on the side of one direction or the other in our system, I would say we definitely should err way on the side of like have more experiences because that is so far from... What our current criteria are, and the current ways that we're approaching things, um, and it's—it's it's, it's, there's a reason that things have been done as they've been done, when it's especially when it's universal. There's no no uh, indigenous context I've come across yet that has not emphasized a facilitator having many experiences themselves, um, and yet in our Western context, that's not something that is uh required or even given due attention i think often um so yeah i would i would absolutely say like that's a really really important part uh, when we're helping people and the stakes can be so high i think we can best sort of draw analogies when we think of like if i were to have a heart surgeon would i want that guy to have a lot of experience doing heart surgery uh or would i just want him to have known or watched other people do heart surgery uh and it's like hmm Yeah, no, I would definitely want somebody who's done a lot of practice rounds of heart surgery themselves before they're implementing it, uh, on me and those spaces, the spiritual spaces we can go to can carry so much weight, um, and significance and when we have somebody help us navigate that, it's hard to actually stress how important that can be, um, given where you can go and, and how you would want support when you go to those courses.
0: Can you talk about uh, interbeing? Because that seems to be a, a big part of your work.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so interbeing is uh, the focus of my dissertation. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's something that's hard to capture in a in a single word um, or, or a short series of words. But um, basically the way that I think of interbeing is holding simultaneously our oneness and our uniqueness at the same time Um, and holding our oneness and uniqueness in really strong ways. So I think a lot of people like sort of relate to oneness as hmm, there's like oneness of the material plane. Uh, Like we are all, yeah, we're all particles and those particles are an expression of the big bang and the laws of physics. but some part of me kind of feels like my consciousness is something different from that um, so while i'm connected on the material plane i actually don't think i'm fully connected on the in the realm of like mind and consciousness um and inner being is a really strong formulation of like interconnectedness is not just a physical it's inter being our beingness is a relate a single relational field um so right now i can think of if I am that relational field as that field, I'm Jason and Thomas at the same time. And yet though I'm Jason and Thomas at the same time, I am each one of them one by one because to be Jason is not to be Thomas uh, in that Jason's experience is unique and Thomas's experience is unique. And so how is it that we are simultaneously each other all at once and yet one by one? And the way I think of, like, reconciling those two is to think of time and space being very similar. So with time, let's say I'm Thomas, but I'm not every moment of Thomas's life all at once, right? We move through time. We say, okay, I'm this moment, and then this moment, and then this moment, and then this moment. And we move through those periods of time. And so I think similarly we could conceive of the universe as moving its identity through expressions across space. Um, so it's, it's Jason and then it's Thomas and then it's Sophie and then it's whoever else, you know, um, it's, it's everything, any, anywhere conscious experiences happen. That is an expression of the universal identity, um, which kind of begs the question, why am I not aware of that? I continue to feel like I'm just Thomas here, just like blah, blah, blah. And I keep being me and I keep speaking and I feel like I'm just me. I don't feel like I'm also Jason. Um, I think that's where you can, like, actually bring in the direct science and what we know about neural systems and how those affect our conscious perception and say, like, okay, as the universe sort of individuates into expression as Thomas, what is it like for the universe to occupy Thomas? Well, Thomas's particular pattern of neurons and complexity, weather system that is Thomas's brain, includes really only direct access to the Uh, memories that that system has um of being me as a little kid so when I'm and and those you could say those memories impact my momentary conscious experience so um there's a word qualia which in philosophy means like the way it feels to have a certain conscious perception so the qualia of blue is the blueness I see in blue which is different than the redness I see in red so visual systems have a qualia, which is what we experience as our visual field. And you can say our tactile system is the qualia of what it feels like to be touched. That's a certain different conscious experience than seeing. Well, you could extend that and say our memory system actually has a qualia of our individual selves. So because we have this neural memory system it's impacting our momentary conscious experience as the sense that I'm only Thomas and only ever Thomas um, in this very moment, it's it's sort of condensing or filtering my identity into that experience. If, on the other hand, somehow there is a universal network of memories, um, and there is um, uh, you know a massively accessible and distributed system, um, we could imagine that we would actually have the experience of being everything at once. But information is more localized into particular brain states at the moment at least Um, and so we do only experience ourselves as this one individual expression but we can get past that limitation of perceived identity through psychedelics which kind of break down those barriers and it's like oh whoa suddenly the qualia of my memory and identity is changing a lot Um, so the inner being identity scale was designed to try to measure how much is people's sense of fundamental identity shifting um, from being a separate individual self at the core level to being instead uh, the universal source expressing itself as a separate individual self, but but fundamentally actually being that, that source in all of its expressions and kind of acting and feeling from that place. Um, so we made that scale in hopes of exploring post-psychedelic, post-meditation retreat, post-spiritual experience, whatever is shifting our identity how important is that identity shift in the mental health outcomes that are coming along with it?
0: And, and so you, do you feel like based upon that scale, when someone is working with psychedelics, that there's, there's some relationship between how they're experiencing that and the potential beneficial outcome of their experience?
1: Definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's for sure. My hypothesis has been my life experience, I think, um, like I uh, have these really radical, like, oh my God, like I'm the universe <laughs> experiencing itself as Thomas, um, epiphanies, which are felt on a deep level, not just a cognitive, like, hmm, like maybe this is the case. It's like, no, I feel this like, wow. And then does, I think it'll be really interesting to look at the like articulation of the inner being identity scale with the psychedelic integration scale. I think it's really at the intersection of those two things where the magic can happen or it's like, okay, I am the oneness and I'm going to actually then integrate that into my life. Uh, for me, that's, that's the core of the years of research I've been doing, trying to explore that question um, is when people access that and they implement that, how does that look? Um, so I think really that's what all religions are saying too. It's like, yeah, like do these commandments really because they're an expression of what this would look like. To to act in line with God's principles is to act from a place where you see God in everything and you, you respect and honor each expression as such.
0: Do you think there are, <clears throat> there are certain ways of working with, with plants or psychedelics that are more conducive to inducing those, those types of experiences?
1: Yeah, that's a super interesting question. Um, and something I'm kind of just feeling out. Um, I think it's a really, really cool project. Like I would love if I had a research lab and some doc student was like, Hey, I want to do this. I'd be like, yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. Like what can enhance the odds of oneness and the translation of oneness? One thing I've been discovering lately is that 5-MeO-DMT um, seems to have a really high rate of inducing oneness experiences. Um, so I think, simply in terms of like if somebody's looking to get to that oneness experience as quickly as possible, uh, a high dose of 5-MeO-DMT seems to be perhaps the most reliable way, just in my own personal experience of, of witnessing um, things. Uh, but then I think, yeah, there's so many traditions of like different things you can do from eye gazing, you know, to, uh, breath work, to, uh, spinning around and whirling dervish dances and, um, a lot of potential approaches.
0: You recently also did a, a bwiti initiation with a boga, correct?
1: Yeah. 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 That was, uh, just maybe a couple of years ago. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Can you speak a bit about that? I, I think aboga is something that's maybe more people have heard of now, but it, it's still, there's still a lot of mystery around it. So to actually go to yeah. the and do that initiation is is quite an interesting thing.
1: It was really cool. Yeah. Um, it was interesting. as a pretty hectic environment. <laughs> um, you know, maybe some of the experiences that is part of it. Navigating this really unpredictable, uh, world of going down to Gabon and just how the social structures work there and everything. Um, but yeah, on a ceremonial level, I think there's common elements, which I see in a lot of different traditions, which is really immersing yourself in nature and like becoming nature, wearing nature, you're taking plant baths, you're, putting, um, leaves on your head all day long, you know, wearing a crown of leaves. And I see this as a very valuable, practically valuable function in terms of being like, you are nature too. Like, remember that, like, we think we're something different and then we separate ourselves and we harm our environment and then it comes back to us. And we do all these things from a place of separation that these rituals are reminding us to, um, not separate ourselves in such ways, come back to a place of connection So that was a big part of it. Um, And then it's all held within a a community structure um, in this boutique context where the whole uh, group of people are there for like every, there's like 20 people participating and three initiates. um, And everyone is there supporting you as you're going through that journey. They're kind of like cheering you on and uh, creating the plant paths for you. And um, it's it's a really cool kind of element of that. And then, in terms of actually, Iboga is, is really interesting. Um, it For me, like I would say one way to describe it was almost like sort of like a meditation of sorts in that the one notable sort of like influence of, of taking it was like the impulse between my action in, or, or the space between my action impulse and my actual actions is very um, extended. Like usually, I would like have some impulse to act. I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna go there. I'm gonna go there. You know, I'm gonna move my arm. I'm gonna do that. And with the boga, it kind of feels like you're under this like weighted blanket, and your action impulses just are given a lot more spaciousness. Um, so it's like, oh, do I want to move? Mm, not really. I'm, I'm just gonna sit here, <laughs> you know, um, or I'm just gonna lay down. And then higher doses, then that's really, you know, like you really are quite. Still, if you go in and witness like a, uh, a group of people doing iboga, often it looks like they're just having a good sleep, um, or they're throwing up, uh, and then, and then you come out and they're like, whoa, that was so intense. But, um, yeah, like in my personal journey, I think iboga, it's interesting how it's a root and it really, to me, it like characterizes that property of going into the roots of things and bringing them up. Whereas let's say 5-MeO is very like kind of ethereal, like takes you upwards to transcend and tap into God and like, and it's, like universal place. Iboga feel like it's reaching down into your roots and kind of confronting you with, uh, with the nature of what those root conditions are. Um, and then also helping transform the relationship to those things. So... Um, for me at the time of my, my Buiti initiation, uh, one of the things I was sort of facing was like, I've been in a monogamous relationship for four years. We are just transitioning to polyamory and I was like facing anticipated jealousy at that point. Um, and I was like, Oh, this is bringing this up. Um, <laughs> see, and then I started to like see these visions of my partner merging with other people and it's like, Ooh. That was very confronting. Um it was, it was like in a very confronting way, it's like right in front of me. Um and then I was able to look at it differently because like they started they merged and then they merged into me. And and then I was like, oh well like this there's no boundaries between these energies. Um and I was and then I was see them merge again and it was like, wait, this is actually I almost like laughed it's like kinda I think I might have laughed out loud, a sense of like kind of comedic relief that We're all just like one energy body and jealousy is uh, unnecessary. It's like right hand and left hand don't need to be jealous of each other. Um, And so that was, that was really relieving. And over the course, and then I had two years of polyamory in my, my actual life in which I had a chance to take that map and apply it to reality. There's a lot of challenges that come up emotionally when facing losing uh, you know, somebody loves so much and, and just like the deepest sense of attachment and care. Um, and then it's like, oh, oh, God. no, like, how do I actually sort of let go of my attachment um, clinging ishness? Um, and that was an amazing learning experience, which I felt like for me, the map of seeing it through Boga was a very helpful map to see. I could have gotten more lost without that map. Um, but what I do see kind of how that generalizes, what I see a lot is like, um, some deeper aspects of people coming up and particularly with Iboga, it can be very confusing ways. Like mine was pretty straightforward. Um, a lot of people can have pretty like diffuse kind of like dreamlike experiences where you're like, hmm, i not sure what that one meant, but, but then, you know, over time it starts to make sense often or like some aspects of the symbology sort of come up. Um, so yeah, I think it's like a really powerful root medicine, um, and one that for me actually was surprisingly gentle in terms of his invitingness. Like I didn't, I felt like I had a lot of agency to, um, be with it. It didn't like overpower me, but that's definitely not always, I was kind of surprised at that because there's a lot of people who say, you know, it's just boom, like takes over and rocks you. But I don't know, that wasn't, my experience was actually quite pleasant, um, in, in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah. I'm just going to plug in my computer. The power almost went off. <clears throat> and you also were speaking about, you're really interested in working with vets where, where did that come from? What was the impetus or the, yeah. the desire? Cause it, it's a very specialized field, but certainly right. one it's very important.
1: Yeah, 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 totally. Um, so I actually posted my, my profile on psychedelic integration, um, psychedelic integration, I think is the website. And, uh, Cynthia, who was the lead coach at the time for the veterans organization reached out to me, I think within hours of me posting my profile. Um, and then that was years ago, like, like I had the profile app and nobody else like reached out in terms of like job opportunities. Uh, but it's, it's, so it's kind of funny, just like within a couple hours, like this really perfect thing, just like, boom, pop that. Um, and I was really excited about it because, uh, I was a professional athlete when I was younger. I was a skimboarder. Um, and so I have a competitive side and, uh, it's like really love competitive sports and, um, kind of like, I guess, a intense person in some ways, but I was very chill, I guess, sort of an intense chiller. Um, and so I could relate on that intense side to the veteran mentality, um, and just like the competitive drive, um, achievement focus. And, uh, just, I felt like I resonated with the mindset, but then could also sort of like weave in my own spiritual work and heartfeltness. And I've been super blessed in my life to have like a very supportive, loving childhood experience. Um, and I felt that I could kind of like share that warmer part of myself, um, with veterans and, uh, kind of be of benefit in that way. Um, so maybe like a, maybe what some of these guys, like I could both relate to the guys, but also maybe provide some of the energy that could be a healing type of energy to experience. Um, so I just felt like it was a really, really, really good fit and, Marcus and Amber who run the vets organization are just incredible, good people. And, um, yeah, just the whole organization from, uh, head to toe just felt like really, really high integrity and good vibes. And for me, that's like how I try to navigate things. It's just like, what do I actually feel? Like, are the intentions good? So I don't, I don't have a lot of like financial drives in my life. I'm like, I'm pretty chill. I live by the beach. I'm like, pretty happy so for me that's not the motivating factor it's just like am i doing meaningful work that feels really good and am i with people who i also feel like are in that space of really believing in what they're doing and, and are good people um and i really felt that from from yeah the vets organization uh, marcus amber martin uh the facilitator and uh yeah just totally loved working with them since that bit <laughs>
0: What are, what are some of the, the, the main challenges that you see that that vets are facing?
1: Mm, Yeah. A lot of childhood trauma, I would say. Um, there's a lot of anger for sure. Um, it, I expected when I came into that work, it was like, Oh, it's going to be a lot of just like the the gnarly stuff that comes up in, uh, military experiences that, that are going to be surfacing. And interestingly, I would say there's a lot more focus on childhood trauma, um, which seems to be kind of the root, uh, cause often of where the path towards the military began. Um, not always, but, uh, you know, in a a lot of cases there's some trauma, which, you know, leads to a sense of anger and then, um, just kind of like engagement from that place with like fighting and, uh, violence. Um, and then you know, also, yeah, there, I think there's, there's that part. Then there's also just the kind of like service part for sure. And that's, that's a really interesting space to navigate when guys are like, man, I, it's such deep service, but that deep service also includes such traumatic events. And how do I like hold both of those? Um, Sometimes, you know, and sometimes it's like, that's just what I had to do. You know, I just, I was at that intersection place and that was really traumatizing, but actually, so that's actually not the important thing to look at is is looking at internally, like who am I and where did who I am start to take form? And that goes back to like childhood. And Iboga is often, I think, bringing up that part. So the kind of structure we work with is on Friday evening, we'll do the Iboga experience it'll surface and like kind of give a lot of movement and traction and transformation, um, on the deeper kind of like deeper trauma and just like internal things that are existing. And then Sunday, uh, Sunday day, we do the five MEO experience. And from there it's like kind of blasting into oneness, unity with God. Um, once that deeper kind of like trauma work has been done. Um, so it's really, really, really cool kind of structure and I've seen just truly incredible results of guys coming through, um, in really bad places. Sometimes there's 180 degree turn. We call it the nuclear option. Um, just taking this really powerful two experiences together, um, and then, and sustaining them over time, um, then becomes the, the variable of importance, which is, uh, luckily, very doable in the context of a lot of these guys who are super committed to the path.
0: It's interesting. It almost sounds a bit like the traditional aboga experience of the death and rebirth ceremony, but instead of with mm. the rebirth with aboga, you're using five meo dmt
1: Yeah, 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 totally. And it's like it's interesting how different psychedelics are used in combination, which is a very new fangled thing, I think. Um, I feel like most traditions have pretty pure uses of one uh, one plant. Um, I'm sure I, I don't know a whole bunch about that. You know, I'm sure there's probably been combinations for sure. But uh, yes, yeah, uh, I'm agnostic at the moment as to how that should be approached as a, a topic too on the broader level. Like how are we combining different experiences and what is the, the impact that kind of creates a, a lot more um iterations and combinations of dynamics uh, yeah
0: with, with part of the vets do you find because a number of decades ago I think there was a lot of reverence for the military it was something that was looked upon of there was a great deal of honor there was respect it was like a noble profession and then uh, I mean this maybe more through an American lens but but then, obviously through maybe some questionable wars and experiences there, there seems to be kind of an anti-military sediment or an anti-police sediment. You you see that a lot as well. Um, And yet at the same time, I mean, just looking like at what's happening in the world now, it's like war hasn't gone away. It's uh, Mm -hmm. there's, there's still bad stuff going on. And, Mm -hmm. And so I think people also realize like, that role is super important or I don't know, maybe a lot of people aren't realizing yeah. that That still, but do you find that that's, that that's a component of like with these guys coming back and maybe not feeling valued or, or being looked upon hmm. as, hmm. as like a, a bad person for what they've done uh, rather than hmm. like, you know, because, you know, interestingly also in, in a lot of ancient traditions, that role of the warrior was a uh, was a vital role uh either yeah. for for people as an individual or, or at least for certain people within a community uh yeah. it was seen as not only vital but th- there was actually a, a spiritual component to it mm-hmm. it was one of the ways of, of of finding source of finding god was through the the, the art of, totally. of, of martial yeah. application and even yeah. in a lot of psychedelic work there's you often hear this idea of like the hero's journey, which is very much going out into the world and overcoming things, uh, fighting the demons, going into the darkness, uh, finding that inner warrior. And it's also very common. I mean, almost all of the, the, the curanderos, the doctors, the healers I know, if, if you really ask them, they would describe their work as they, they would say like they're a warrior. They're going yeah. into people's uh, consciousness and they're they're, they're they're beings and they're they're bringing order they're they're going into the darkness fighting the demons removing bad energy yeah. and it's it's a battle yeah. in a way um yeah. but it seems like maybe in a lot of the societies we come from that role is is, is being overlooked or, or seen as not mm. important is yeah. that something you, you notice with the vets at all that, that that there's maybe this this quality of like not being seen or not being appreciated mm.
1: It's a super interesting question Um, and there's a diverse relationship that I've witnessed in, in regards to this. Um, yeah, the, the general role of military is, uh, interesting, right? It's like death and killing are necessary parts of, of life. Um, life is death. It's the death of every single moment is the birth of a new moment. It's life, death, life, death, life, death all the time. Um, if you think about, I like to think on like kind of analogy levels of within the body to like a societal way. It's like within the body, if we didn't have like T cells that were killing, uh, you know, the pathogens that are invading our system, like we'd be pretty screwed pretty quickly, you know. Um, so there's some level of healthy kind of like uh, death and killing, uh, you know, that I think is entailed in healthy systems. Um, there's going to be a whole diversity of what evolution offers up in terms of what emerges in our world and those um, some of those are unhelpful mutations uh, and so there's a function to detecting and filtering those out i think on the social level i think at the same time you can have obviously uh, overactive systems of warfare for sure and that's a really horrible thing to witness um, and I think some guys basically will go in and perhaps witness unjustified wars that are stemming from a place of somebody who initiated it out of integrity. Um, and to be then a part of that is, is disturbing to the soul. Um, and it probably depends on what deployment and how, what was the guy's role in that deployment. Um, and so it's really person to person. Um, I think ultimately, like, we are experiencing the energy of decisions on a lot of levels. And the leaders who lead us into those decisions, their energy is going to filter downward. So if there's systems of leadership that uh, make decisions with very poor integrity, that's going to be filtered down into the soul experience of the guys who are showing up in a really unfortunate way. It's not their, you know, prerogative to make that decision. Um, and it's tough to say when you sign up for a role that you're like, okay, I'm doing what the authority is going to tell me. And there's a place to that too. You know, you can't, uh, I'm a liberal academic and I love questioning things and that would not work in the military. Uh, for, you can't have a, a military full of liberal academics. It would be out competed, um, pretty quickly by other militaries and it would cease to exist. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the unfortunate byproduct of authority sometimes can be the way that, you know, those those out-of-integrity decisions filter down. And the whole, you know, industry is necessary. As you said, like, we, we need to have warriors. We need to have um, force. We, like, our body needs to go through tension to be healthy. Like, we lift weights and exercise, and if we were sedentary, we would not be very healthy individuals. Um, so I think a lot of the guys actually have a holding of how incredibly intense they're, they're sac- making sacrifices um, that can be, I think, overlooked on the the liberal end sometimes or or whatever end of like um, pacifism where it's like, oh, we shouldn't go to war. Therefore, I'm not going to respect what this person's done. I think that's really sad too, because like man, do those guys sacrifice a lot. And man, is it really intense what them and their families go through in service of, uh, you know, a noble cause. And can part of that service be the personal ego of accomplishment drive? Like, for sure. Like, we all have that. Um, so there's going to be a mixture of drives and honor and questioning. And I think it really gets down probably to every individual. How, why and how did they show up to do what they're doing and how did they then relate to the inputs that were fed to them. Um, but one way or the other, they're, they're really putting the work in. Um, and that's, that's pretty awesome. And I think in the circles, uh, in the military circles, there is a lot of respect, uh, regardless of the, the broader social condition. Um, I wouldn't say that like those kind of like broader, um, yeah, sort of impressions really feed into the more local environment. I think there's a lot of respect for the military and their roles um, in the like kind of on the ground local environments around there. Yeah, it could be challenging to hold in, the, in those social contexts sometimes. Imagine.
0: Use the word a couple times, and, and I think maybe in, in Michael's interview, I, I also heard it. Was this uh, word forgiveness? Uh, so that mm. seems like something that, that resonates with you. Why? Why do you think that, that, that word or or that idea of forgiveness is, is so important in this, this psychedelic or even just human experience?
1: Yeah, I think because I see it come up a lot with the veterans. Um, there's a lot of anger. Um, I think the the antidote to anger can be forgiveness in, in a lot of instances. So a lot of the transformation that I see is moving from a place of anger to forgiveness. And that could be anger at the self. That could be anger at parents. That could be anger at the military structure. You know, it could be so many different forms of anger, anger at childhood experiences. Um, And to come into a place of like, okay, actually, I forgive that person they were holding a lot. I forgive that parent. They were just a kid who grew up and had a child really young and didn't know what to do. I forgive them. I forgive myself, I went through these intense experiences of death and that, you know, and then I became alcoholic and like, oh, I see why and I see how and I see, I forgive myself for that. Um, See, I think there's so much healing uh, that comes up through forgiveness, particularly in the domain of anger, and that's particularly uh, salient with military population.
0: You said you worked at Rhythmia. Uh, can you talk a bit about that? What you're doing there and what that experience was like? Because that's a it's a pretty big ayahuasca center. I mean, I think they work with uh-huh. sometimes a hundred people at a time. I mean, yeah, must have been a yeah, pretty yeah. interesting uh, experience being there.
1: Yeah, yeah, I was there uh, just in the formation days. It was great. Um, that was a, a very different context. And so Rhythmia is like, uh, I would say, you know, they're like a super comfortable center. Um, there, you don't have to trek like mad days into the Amazon to get there, you know, it's like a pretty cushy environment and it's a cool model of like, if you want the most like comfortable and like, well, um, I don't know, attended to basically environment, like what does that look like? And welcoming in people who would not have those other experiences, you know? um they wouldn't be trekking into the jungle and often that can be like kind of high profile people who um are like, I don't want to be uncomfortable. Um what's what's the best way to be comfortable and have an ayahuasca experience. Um Rhythmia is a great uh center to address that niche. Um I would say the the um difference from the ammo you know like some of the there's there's pros and cons to that, right? Like you maybe forfeit some of the authentic elements that can also have a lot of value. Um, and they try their best, I think, to incorporate those, those elements, but there is something to trekking through the jungle for a while that, uh, you can't get without trekking through the jungle for a while. Um, and you can get a beautiful Costa Rican beach right nearby. That's pretty cool too. Um, so that, that was great. And I, I think like, um, I could say for sure at Rhythmia too, the heart and intention is really good. Like the founder, um, their Jerry, like had a really deep transformative experience. Um, and you can feel that like he cares about, uh, what, what the mission is, um, at Rhythmia. Um, so that was really nice to be a part of their kind of, uh, founding experience at that time. And I haven't been, um, I haven't been back in a little while, so I think they've actually taken off a bit i can't really speak to their more recent manifestation um but yeah i've a lot of respect for them and really cool place um and uh, at the same time i would say if you want to have like a, a jungle experience where you're like hardcore uh tribal environment um trekking into the temple of the way of light uh is a, is a good way to go too
0: can you talk a little bit about ayahuasca? Because that, uh, of all of the different psychedelics out there or plant medicines, uh, that seems to be the one that's taken off the most. Uh, I mean, even when I started this work, probably over a decade now, uh, if I use that word, no one had any idea what I was talking about. Yeah. And now most people have at least heard of it <laughs> if yeah. not actually even tried it themselves in in some weekend yeah. getaway in, in a major city uh yeah. do you have any sense of, of why that particular medicine has become so prominent and and seems to be helping so many people
1: that's a really good question um and it is interesting, right? Like, I think one probably the first thing that comes to mind is there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of structures built around ayahuasca use that are really good structures. Um, so, for example, Sonoran desert toad and the five meo that comes from that is a relatively, as far as I am aware, like kind of new um, experience. There's not a whole like super deep lineage, um, or at least a widespread super deep lineage that is built around that. Um, and those structures really matter. So with ayahuasca it has been used for you know, hundreds or thousands of years in the jungle. And so you have a, a distributed wisdom system, um, built up across space that I think uh, is there for people to tap into. And I would imagine that that was very helpful. Um, even mushrooms also, uh, you know, the, those systems exist and people can tap into them and then it can spread more easily. Whereas like, you know, five MEO might be just as valuable of a experience and something to work with, but maybe we're just discovering how to plug people into that. And we don't totally know yet. Um, so I think that's one factor. Uh, I just had somebody, uh, yesterday we were talking about, like, like kind of ayahuasca and shrooms and difference and, um, kind of compare it. Like for me, there's a little bit more of a, Mixture of light and dark in ayahuasca, um, and when you go into that dark, you're actually facing things in yourself that are ready to transform. So, like I talked about earlier about my um, achievement drive and like clinging to achievement and trying to gain validation or belongingness through that. It's like, oh, that's sort of like an uncomfortable place in myself I don't really want to acknowledge, but oh there it is. Um, and it, it, you know, came up and it's super good for me to look at that and, and try to transform it. Whereas maybe if I just had a purely light experience, like snorkeling on shrooms in Thailand, which I had and that was fucking amazing, I <laughs> totally recommend it uh, if you can swim and you're doing it you know, appropriately, um, I, you know, I still cherish that experience a lot, but it's more like eating ice cream and uh, ayahuasca to me is more like eating salad you know, it's like (laughs) very, like you can sustainably eat salad every day. Uh, and like, I think ayahuasca, there's a lot more balance in it. Like you're looking at the light, you're looking at the dark and in that way, you're not getting addicted. Um, just like ice cream, you might get kind of addicted to the sugar and the pleasantness of it. Um, so it's a little less sustainable in terms of your health profile. I feel like ayahuasca has somewhat more of a sustainable, um, health profile, like, Churches are using it, you know, Santo Dime, like where you're doing it every single week and people have 1,000, 2,000 experiences with it. And there's scientific studies of people who have had 300 to 1,800 experiences. They looked at their health, their cognitive functioning, their social relationships, etc. No facet of their cognition, health, social relationships was inferior to people who had not used it. Um, and this is 300 to 1,800 experiences. So I think it was like validation that ayahuasca is a very sustainable experience in terms of your soul and how it impacts your soul. Um, So I think that's one really, really strong benefit. And then it's just an incredible plant. Like, you know, the way it brings things up and um, the mystical qualities and the kind of diversity, it seems like a very diverse functioning plant too, more unpredictable than shrooms like I, I think there's a lot more people who go into ayahuasca and have a non-experience um a significant amount of the time or you know like don't have an experience and then suddenly just like boom whoa it's 10 minutes and then it's gone and or you know like oh like a really light experience and a really dark experience and and then fractals and then the, like and then just feeling and there's like a lot of ways it manifests and so i think of it as almost like this very like multifaceted uh, plant spirit, um, that can, that can work at a, on a left, a lot of different planes and levels. So there's something really kind of cool about that. Um, try, I try to imagine like plants as people and it's like, it's just a really good feeler person.
0: <laughs> Do you, from your experience, are, are there any, are there any things that people should look out for within themselves that may be signs that working with with plant medicines or psychedelics isn't a good idea? Uh, yeah. Certain health conditions or, or red flags or psychological things that are going on, which uh, yeah. people should really maybe take seriously before they, they consider working with, with something?
1: Yeah, 100%. Um, I think the starting point I would, I would explore that is Partly I think integration is so important because psychedelics can be disintegrating in the experience in some way that they are reshaping things or changing your mind, um, you know, in terms of how to change your mind, right? They're like shifting our mind or, our lives, they're shifting things around. You can't have change without movement. Right. Um, and so if somebody's life is already in a state of chaos or movement too much, um, I would maybe be a little bit wary. Like at the same time, you could have a, a big state of change. Like let's say you had a divorce and that's a great time to tap into psychedelics and say, okay, how do I want to direct this change? But if globally you're just struggling to like, keep the components of your reality together, um, that's not a good time to do it. I would say, and conditions like, uh, psychosis, schizophrenia, bipolar, um, those can be conditions, the hallmark of those can be, uh, I'm in a place where I'm like struggling to keep the, the pieces together. So dispersing the pieces even further or continuing that uh, motion and recombination can be a poor choice. Um, there's interestingly not, I, I think, a lot of research on schizophrenia and psychedelic use because it's so risky and Um, I think generally that is the case, um, that it's, it's a very risky question, but I don't know. At the same time, um, I have a personal circumstance in my family where it's, uh, like, you know, things can get to the, the place where you're at such a desperate point that, uh, you know, there, there could be reason to explore a more radical treatment option, in that case, I would say just really like try to get the best provider you can um, if that's where you happen to be because the risk is a lot higher because you yeah you don't want to to really last resort to already be um, at a place where the elements are disintegrated and you're you're taking that even further in a certain way it's kind of a hail mary option of sorts on the opposite side of that I would say when people are in too rigid places like yeah too much kind of rigidity and they're stuck and they want a way to shift things up. That's a perfect time. So I think especially like when I see somebody who's in like a job that is not heartfelt and their life is suffering because they've been in that job for a really long time, like, boom, go for it, go for it. (laughs) Full dose, (laughs) go in, you know, given that all the other, you know, healthy profile otherwise. Um, Cause yeah, if you're looking, if you're stuck and it's rigid, and you want to mix those patterns up, like that's a great, great time to do that, or to just refocus and recenter. I've taken psychedelics often at transition periods in my life, um, mm-hmm. where I want to tap into my intuition and kind of, okay, I know that the pieces are going to shift. Right as I graduate my PhD, um, like a seven-year path, new stage. That was part of my incentive for going to the temple. It's like, okay, as I shift these elements, what's me tap deeply into what the universe is saying about like what feels good what is alignment with oneness like what is my next step um honoring you know from this place of intuition like, that's a super good time um to take them and then obviously there's like medical um you know, want to check the you know, medical drugs that you're doing um yeah. I mean, it's just pretty incredible. I would say with those caveats of like people who are struggling to keep their reality together, like on a, on a pretty like reality level, like, well, the pieces, I'm kind of like feeling a little bit up in the air, up in the sky. Like I'm not feeling grounded, like might've even had a psychotic break or something like that, that type of person I would say, don't do it. And I would uh, honestly actually say that people who do too much psychedelics, can start to go into that stage too so i'd also say don't do it if you've already been doing so many psychedelics um like i'm deeply in this field but i i relative to a lot of people have not had like a whole bunch of experiences i have had like you know 20 ayahuasca experiences maybe 20 shrooms and 10 acid you know like whatever like somewhere in that ballpark but there's people who are like had hundreds of experiences sometimes and i don't think that that's necessary like Often, actually, I I see the people who have chosen more balanced paths as like having done more integration and perhaps being in a globally healthier state. um, With the caveat of like if you're doing deep intensive trainings for a very specific intention and purpose, um, going into that can be very helpful. But just as a kind of habitual state of continuing to throw the elements of your life up in the air. And then, oh, throw it up in the air again, throw it up in the air again, you know, it's like, uh, okay, no, 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 like, pa- like, pause, let those elements settle, let them sink in, you know, shift them, work them into your life.
0: Yeah. Do you have any sense of uh, where this work is, is moving towards in, in the coming years or decades?
1: Um, kind of the, the, and the broader way, like psychedelics, the, the whole thing. Yeah. W-
0: within societies, uh, like their, their place in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it already mm-hmm. seems to be going more mainstream, but do you see that continuing to happen or are there yeah. issues in the way that are going to come up or it's, it's something that yeah. like, you see being completely integrated into society, almost like yeah, as a, yeah. as a medical yeah. system or rite of passage or yeah, I
1: pull out my magic eight ball for this. One. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think you know, based on the trends, I would say for sure legalization is going to happen um, more increasingly. Like the data is just so strong, uh, you know, in, in the science and um, legitimately, it's, it's so helpful. You can't witness thousands of people going through and having positive impacts and not say that this is going to be something very important. Um, so that I feel like pretty little doubt about. I also feel pretty confident that there's going to be some probably major stumbles or major mishaps. Um, they're, they're going to be held in an uh, in irresponsible context. Um, there's going to be financial industries who are trying to capitalize on the financial gains without sufficient integrity, that's going to cause, um, poorly held experiences, which, you know, like those things are going to happen too. There's going to be people who kind of like are not their, their reality is too up in the air and they take it and they, you know, in the worst kind of like, um, minority cases, some really bad things are going to happen out of feeling in a very too disoriented place without appropriate, um, support. Um, those things have happened already in the path. And I don't think that there, uh, enough of those events that the risk is high enough as a generality in any way to offset the healing benefit. You know, if you take a thousand suicidal people, and you know, maybe say 300 of those would have committed suicide without psychedelics, um, and then one out of 20,000 people, uh, makes a really bad decision. Like that, that trade-off is not sufficient. I think that's pretty, pretty like widely established though. I could totally imagine some, some random, you know, haphazard bad uses and, and actually I've been impressed. Like it's been Something I've been interested to learn that in a lot of ways, like psychedelics are a tool um, and that tool can be used in a variety of ways. You know, they're opening us up, they're amplifying emotions, they're um, opening our personal boundaries. If you open personal boundaries and you amplify emotions, if you use that intentionally, you can connect to oneness and you can connect to what a life looks like, lived in integrity and where your heart is calling you. If you open up and amplify intentions and you're a, a sinister person, um, you can create some really bad experiences too. So like, it's not just like, oh, this is a a, uh, a penicillin pill. And you put it in anyone's hands and you just tell them, hey, just give this to people. Like, uh, you know, it's not like that. It's like, it's more of a... Um, you know, something along the lines of, of like a hammer, you know, it's like, yeah, hammers are great. And some people are not going to use them if they're not, if they're not high integrity people, you can use a hammer in a, not a great way too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think as a whole trend, like the question I would say, they hopefully, I think they're, they're going to become more used and they're going to, I think legality is going to increase for sure. I think financial industries will get involved, which is, a little scary, um, medical industries will get involved. Um, I think how we do that and how we, uh, inform those systems is going to be really important and how many people are really connecting the experiences so they can know for themselves. Like this is really important. Like I need to approach this with the utmost respect, the utmost integrity. Um, that is a really critical message, I think to, to pass on. In the process of the, the integration of psychedelics into society.
0: And so, how about for yourself? You you finished your doctorate now. What uh, do you have any plans moving forward? Do you see uh, yeah like what direction you you think you may be headed in? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I just uh, so I co-authored the psychedelic integration scales with David Yaden, um, who's at Hopkins. And I just sent him an email. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, inquiring about a postdoc position there um, on uh, facilitator training standards. Um, so the potential project would be to kind of travel around the world, talk to different tribes, different uh, psychologists, different professionals from all angles of what are training, st- what are good training standards, and what would that look like um, to apply to psychedelics. Um, so that I think could be a really interesting next step um, kind of just addressing this broader question. How do we ensure that, uh, people are getting appropriate training and how do we ensure that people have the best quality facilitators that they can possibly
0: have access to? Great. Well, thank you, Thomas. I appreciate your time. Uh, we're, we're actually coming up, I think on almost two hours now. Um, is there anything you want to, you want to add or anything that we didn't touch on that you'd like to talk about? Um, not too much. I would
1: say, I guess, uh, I'm super passionate about inner being. And so like, whenever I have a chance to say something, I would say like, really the message I would want to put out to the world is it is really beneficial. Um, and also very, um, scientifically justified to think of your life as being equivalently expressed through the universe as all lives that you truly are experiencing whoever you are out there listening you are me right now and i am you um and we're all each other and that's not just like a hippie slogan that's like if you look at physics like we we all came from one little big bang and we still are that you know we're still that big bang you and i like that's our identity we're a continuation of that and so the more we act in line with that, the more we get to be confident in ourselves and happy because we're like, oh, you know, I can take rest in my own sense of integrity. I know that I'm showing up for the world in a good way. And so I have a light spirit. And and that is the most important thing, I think, for everyone out there to explore and embody. Um, so... Yeah, I think that that's what I would say. <laughs> um, I have a, a nonprofit I run that's the, the the kind of like social mission is to create oneness experiences and embodiment um, kind of based along those lines. It's called as we wake as we is our website and um, uh, yeah, so I just really encourage people to take a dive into exploring those words
0: if they feel called to. Great. If, if anyone is interested in learning more about you or getting in touch with you, is, is that the best way through that website?
1: Uh, yeah, there's a little contact tab on the website. Um, yeah. And then you could find the, uh, psychedelic integration articles. If you just type in like frontiers, psychedelic integration skills, um, it's an article on the frontier frontiers journal. Um, yeah. If anyone's feeling called around that space of like that mission statement and wants to collaborate. I'm, I'm super stoked. So reach out for sure.
0: Great. Well, thank you, Thomas. I appreciate your, your time and, and you seem to be doing really good work and, uh, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your, your life, your story and your, your insight and your wisdom. Yeah. I appreciate it, Jason. A great, great chat. All right, everyone. That's it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Thomas. Uh, It was really nice for me to be able to sit down and and have him share in his life experience, his wisdom. Um, I think he's doing really good work, kind of integrating these these different aspects and uh, different fields of of working with these these plants and these traditions. Um, As always, if you're able to support the podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really good option. Uh, You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers that you can sign up for. Also, those tiers give you different things back. Things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. To all the people who have done that, thank you very much. As always, I really appreciate your support. Um, And if you're able to do that, I I really appreciate it. It's really based on that support that uh, allows me to uh, continue to make these shows. Uh, There's also the ability to direct donate via PayPal, so I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes. If you're not able to do that, um, if you're uh, viewing this show on YouTube, um, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, leaving any questions or comments in the comments section, all of those little things really help with the algorithms and getting the show out to a bigger audience. And if you're listening to this show, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other platform following, the show leaving a starred rating and a short review that's also a really big help um so i think that's it uh this is the last of, uh, of a few interviews as i said before i'm uh, running this dieta so i'm uh, i'm unsure of the following guests although i believe one woman is coming on uh, bettina fisher is a really interesting woman um she basically does a lot of work with, with healing and, and channeling and just really, really fascinating stories. So uh, uh, I think she'll be a really good guest. And then uh, also, hopefully, a guy who works for Ice uh, I believe his name is Mark Ashala. He should be coming on. He just finished a new book uh, talking about um, uh, integrating, integrated practices uh, with plant medicines or psychedelics. So um, those should be the next guests. Uh, and I think that's it. So again, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, thanks to Thomas for coming on. Uh, I hope you all are well and, um, I will see you all on the next episode.